just being a person who's in the nightclub scene in Hollywood, I was like, oh, I know who this person is. <laughs> like, I knew who she was. And I was like, oh, shit. I'm doing a party for Mick Jagger and Rick Rubin at the biggest madam in Hollywood's house. And I'm like, and it's Friday and the party's tonight. Hey guys, Pat here. You're tuning in to the Founder Hour, and today on the show is Brent Bolthouse. He's the founder of Bolthouse Productions, which owns and operates a Santa Monica staple, the Bungalow, and also puts together the Neon Carnival, the ultimate Coachella after party with high-end brands and celebrities in attendance year after year. But before all this came about, Brent was a kid growing up in Southern California, moving around a bunch until finally settling in LA in the 1980s and working at a gas station for minimum wage to make ends meet. After meeting a friend while going to cosmetology school, they started promoting at nightclubs and throwing parties together. They were a major success from the start, and Brent eventually branched out and started Bolt House Productions and continued to throw parties and corporate events for A-list celebrities for decades to come. He's been involved with the creation and growth of many of Hollywood's most famous nightclubs, which you'll hear more about on the show. Brent's got an incredible story, and we can't wait for you all to experience it. We started off this awesome conversation by learning a bit about his childhood. Well, I mean, I was adopted at birth, and I grew up kind of all over Southern California. So we lived in Riverside, and then we went from Riverside to like Lake Arrowhead area, running springs, and then from there we went to Barstow, and from there we ended up in Joshua Tree. Wow. Moved so it was kind of my dad moved around, yeah. Because yeah. he had, in the 70s, he had a gas station, and he lost it in the gas wars, and he got a job in a restaurant supply company. So he sort of was like, if he kept moving to different territories, he kept getting promotions and raises. So, and he ended up in Palm Springs, which is, at least in the 80s, was like a big restaurant town, right? Mm-hmm. So, and he was in a restaurant supply company. So he ended up becoming like the regional manager. And so it was sort of like, as far as he could go in that company without moving to LA, which my dad doesn't like big cities. So neither yeah. does my mom, so. So for that, it meant like you're kind of switching schools a bunch, like going yeah. from school to yeah, school. Yeah. And so what was your, like your friend group like? Like was it tough to like have to keep, you know, making friends and switching friends? And Well, I mean, obviously as a kid, it's, I think, yeah, that it has to be tough, right? I mean, but I don't think you know how tough it is because you're, what do you do? You mm-hmm. can't be like, no, dad, I'm going to stay. See you guys, you're seven. You're like, no, you guys leave. So I think. But yeah, I mean, of course, it shapes how you are as, as an adult. Is mm-hmm. yeah, it was probably harder than I knew at the time. What, so, what was like your um, the longest like city or area that you stayed in, or where you finally well, settled? Think, well, yeah, we like I said. So we lived in Riverside till I was about five, and then we lived in Running Springs, which is near Lake Ohead, for like a year. Which, as a kid, it was like, oh, this is awesome. I went from a city to, like, the mountains, and we were snowboarding, not snowboarding, skiing, and mountains was such a, you know, it was like a all-day holiday. And then we ended up in Barstow, and we lived there for, like, <clears throat> four years or something. For a while, a good stay, and then we had to move from Barstow, which I certainly wasn't happy about. Yeah. Because um, I went from Barstow, where we were in sort of a community, 
like a typical suburban kind of scenario with like sidewalks and track houses and it was the late 70s and we were skateboarding and we had drain pools and we were listening to the Sex Pistols and the B-52s and skateboarding and then I went to Josh Tree where there was like dirt roads mm. so I didn't really have skateboarding anymore so that was a, certainly a loss of sorts and um, I didn't love it. Mm-hmm. So and then so from fifth grade, I stayed in Josh Trayon. That was sort of where we stayed. Gotcha. And is that where you ended up going to high school as well? Yeah. While you were in high school, what was Brent's kind of goals or vision of the future? Were there any? And what were they? You know, there wasn't really any of that. So, you know, in high school, I had a big. Um, problem with drugs so and I was pretty rebellious so I was sort of of that generation of it was the early 80s or and you know I found myself hanging out with you know punk rock kids and that's what we were there was like six of us in that in that desert little desert town there was a very small minority of, of punk rock kids and so we were sort of angry I was angry probably because I'd moved out of a town where I had friends and I had no friends. And so early on I found um, uh, drugs and alcohol is sort of like, I like this. And it sort mm-hmm. of made some connections with probably the wrong kinds of kids. Mm-hmm. And and then we sort of became the kids of the punk rock variety, which we were the minority. So we were the kids that we were getting beat up by like weird jock guys and called fags because we had mohawks and were weird. Right. So sort of like this mm-hmm. weird experience of like, mm-hmm. what, what we didn't, I don't even think we knew what a fag was. Like, it was yeah. Like, it wasn't, there was no context of like anything and it, you know, which I always think is great because in that little town there was, we all were white. So there was no ethnicity, really diversity there. So it was just sort of like, there was no real prejudice because it didn't exist. So as an adult, I kind of look at it going, well, I don't have that stereotype mm-hmm. because it, it just wasn't part of like what we were. We certainly had the stereotype of like certain class sex of like jocks, heavy metal kids, four punk rock kids, you know, and sort of that. And But I was always that kid that got along with everybody in high school. And Brent, how do you think that, you know, impacted you? You know, the experimenting with the drugs in your high school years. How I think that- experimenting is the wrong word. <laughs> I think I was a crazy drug addict who was like okay. doing crystal meth for 10 days at a time. Okay. Wow. So. And what sort of short-term impact that, you know, did that have during those years? Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, it affected my family life. It affected my, you know, my friends. We are all just kind of out of control. My parents were simple people that grew up on farms in Illinois and just really... I don't think they even knew what drugs were. So they, I don't think they, at some point, they didn't know what was going on with me. They just knew they, were, they had this crazy, rebellious teenager. And then at some point, I think they figured it out when I would be like, I'll be home in an hour and I didn't come home for five days. I think they figured out something was wrong. Mm-hmm. So um, that was certainly part of my youth. And that projected me into getting sober at 16. I went to rehab, got sober turned my life around some big time and then I moved to LA at 17 just just as I finished 10th grade so you dropped out of high school dropped out of high school and moved to LA why did why did you move to to LA to get sober because there 
there was a guy in rehab. His father had a halfway house in North Hollywood, and he said, I have a bed. You should come stay at my house instead of going back to the friends I had in the desert that were doing drugs. Mm-hmm. That could have been San Diego. That could have been anywhere, right? I don't know. It just I just said, okay. That was just who I knew, and he happened to be in North Hollywood, and that led me to L.A. So there was no real plan to come to L.A. It was just really like I needed to be sober, and I needed to be away from the kids that I was with, and I wanted to be sober. I had a strong desire to to embrace being sober. Mm-hmm. Of course, at 17 years old, you're you're still a young kid, you know, um, and it seems as though at this point you just wanted to get your life kind of back together. But was there anything else that you wanted to do while you were in LA besides that? No. I, my focus was being sober. So I lived in a halfway house. I went to meetings. I worked at a gas station. And with a lady who was, happened to be sober also. So she only hired sober guys. So it was like I, I had this great early sobriety where it was like I lived with sober people. I went to meetings. And I worked with sober people. So it was mm-hmm. like this great foundation of like everything I did was sort of like eat, sleep, drink sober right so and I didn't have much you know there was no the ambition was to stay sober right that's sort of what I knew I knew like that was my primary purpose was that and from there what I was being told by people around me was like you know these promises do come true if you stay sober anything can happen like it was just like okay I'm not that's sort of what what was really all I was really focusing on at that time Mm -hmm. So uh, you were working at the gas station, um, and this is like your late teens, right? I started there when I was 17. 17. So I got sober in November, and my birthday's in December. I had my birthday in rehab, and then I moved to L.A. like in January. Mm -hmm. So I was like just turned 17. What year is this? I think it's 86. Okay. Or 87. Mm -hmm. And what was L.A.? Maybe it's 86. I don't know. What was the LA scene like at that time? Uh, like, I mean, I know you were kind of focused on on getting sober, but like, just overall, what do you what do you remember from that time? Um, well, that or at that point, I don't remember anything. I lived because I was working at a gas station in Sherman Oaks. Okay. So, I to me, there was no, you know, and if anything, my dad instilled like hard work in me. So it was like I was the guy that would like work a double shift or work at Christmas because I got time and a half. Like I was always just sort of like working like we worked. So it was like when you work eight hours a day and you're making minimum wage or four twenty five an hour, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. you're sort of like it was very just I wasn't going out. I didn't even know what that was. Like I knew we had come from LA when we were teenagers, like some punk rock concerts and some stuff in the city. We would go here, Irvine kind of around but we didn't know like there was no real context at that point of like nightlife or doing something Mm -hmm. in that space or thinking about those terms like I did as I got a little bit older that kind of came into focus but at that point it was really nothing so when did you start getting into the promoting scene and kind of really accelerating where you're at today so um I, so I worked at the gas station for, I don't know, like, I want to say a year and a half, two years, maybe year and five, I don't know, year and 10 months, whatever Mm -hmm. it was, right? Mm -hmm. And so my dad said to me, if I go to college, I'll help you with your rent. I'll pay your rent. And when you're making- And they're still at Joshua Tree at the time? Yeah, they're still living in the the desert. And I said, 
And when you're making minimum wage or four twenty five an hour, whatever that was, and your dad says he'll pay your rent, that's a big yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah. Right? Because you're like, okay, that's a big deal. So I'm like, great, I'm gonna go to college. So I started doing some research and the part of my 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 path in life is that I'm undiagnosed dyslexic who never was treated for that or identified as that in school. So I so like Math was great and English was terrible. Like I could never get that. So I was like, I don't want to go back to school. It's Mm -hmm. terrifying learning. So I started doing research and I was like, oh, I can go to cosmetology school at Santa Monica City College and I can be in college and my dad will pay my rent. So somewhere in my drugged out fantasy in the desert, I cut some girl's hair short, like his hair. Yeah. Right, short like that, and she could wear it. Right, she just looked great with short hair. Right. So everyone was like, "Who cut your hair?" It's like Katy Perry with short hair now. Right, it was she like, great, like yeah. who cut your hair? And it was like Brent did. And so then everyone started coming to me to cut their hair, and I got this reputation as cutting people's hair. And I would barter, so it'd be like, "Oh, I'll cut your hair. Give me a joint, or give me a, some coke, or some crystal, or some mushrooms, like right. whatever it was." I was like, "Great, let's barter for haircuts for drugs." It was like a great business. <laughs> And so I, but I was, for whatever reason, cutting hair made sense in my brain. Like I could figure out how it looked okay on people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't know why, but, and so I didn't like mess up people's hair too bad. (laughs) So I was like, I can go do that. And I kind of was like, okay, I'll go cut hair. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. So I got myself in cosmetology school, not exactly what my dad probably planned, right? He probably was thinking a little more business or just regular school but you know he paid my rent and that was probably around the time when I sort of was sort of thinking you know I got introduced to some more people and some different networks of people and people going to nightclubs and going out and that was kind of a fun life so I did I definitely started to experience that a little bit more and this is during your college years or Santa Monica you know so I I I feel like cosmetology school is only a year long. It's like a year course. Okay. At least back then it was. It was like it's more like a program. No, it was a t- you had to do it, but it was like because it's a state. You got to get a state license. Yeah, so you have to be go certified. Yeah. You got to be certified. So it's a certain thing, and you do it, and they just happen to have that course at right. SNC. But I don't think it's not like a four year thing gotcha. or two year. I think yeah, gotcha. I really think it was a year because I, I I went through that and I was in that class and I was such and for whatever reason like I had oh. met a handful of people. Mm-hmm. And I had met a couple guys that were designers and a couple artists and a couple people. And so I was kind of going out a little bit and doing some stuff. And I got to assist. So when you cut hair, what you do is you get out of cosmetology school and then you go assist at a a good hair salon if you're lucky. And then you work for someone that's great who teaches you how to do it. So It's kind of like an apprenticeship. Exactly. So as I was in college, I was apprenticing at a really hot hair salon at the Beverly Center. Okay. Right? So I was sort of like two steps ahead. So mm-hmm. I'd be already an apprentice. So at the time I got out of school, I would be that much ahead of that. And so when I worked at hair salon, I can also then take like color classes at Vito Sassoon or mm-hmm. at Sebastian Hair. And like, mm-hmm. so it'd be like, I was getting all like triple education. Right. Right. So when you come out, I was like, I'm going to be really ahead of the curve. But in that 
flight in there, I, I slipped a disc in my back and I had to have back, major back surgery. Oh, wow. So I went like nine months of cosmetology school and then I couldn't really stand on my feet anymore. I had to be bedridden and I had to have back surgery. So, and that was in 1988. Okay. And that kind of came to a head around my, you know, I had, I had surgery for my back on or around my birthday, like before my birthday. And so it was in December. I know that. And so I had to drop out of school and then went and did that, had surgery. And the pain was like relieved so much that literally, like I had, let's say I had surgery on the 16th of December. I was back out at a New Year's Eve party in LA on, for New Year's Eve. Wow. Like it was like, I was ready to go. Hello, doctor. I get, well, you know, when you have a pinched nerve, it's just like someone touching you and then yeah. they're not touching you. It was right. like that, the surgery pain was there, but the pain of the nerve that was going down gotcha. my leg was completely gone and it was like a miracle because mm-hmm. I was in so much pain. It was debilitating, crippling pain. So the kind of pain where you make deals with God, like, okay, if I can just get through this, I promise you, <laughs> yeah, I'll, yeah, yeah. you know, I'll, go, I'll, I'll save everybody. Like, you know, it was just like you making all these deals with God in bed crying. So... Then I went, so at that, at that point, um, I'd met a handful of people and this kid who went to Otis Parsons was like, let's do a nightclub together. And I was like, what? And you're like barely past 18? No, I'm not. I just, just turned 19. Yeah. And he was asking you to start a club with him. With him. Right. So I was like, no, I said, no, the first 10 times he asked. I was like, no, I didn't understand. I didn't even understand what that who, meant. Who was he though? Was he like part of that scene? So this, this kid, Tafu, who was an art, who was an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was at Otis Parsons. And for whatever reason, he felt like, you know, I don't know. I, I can't tell you to this day, like why he asked me to do it. He obviously saw something in me or, you know, I think when you're young and you're a kid and you're like, Hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like, let's do it. Like, you just don't think like, you know, so, I had a couple friends of mine that were designers and they were like, I was telling him, he kept bugging me about it. And they knew him too. And they're like, listen, we started talking about it. And they're like, you should just try it. You got nothing to lose. It was really like a conversation. Mm-hmm. We had. Like, and I was like, okay. So I said, yes. And then I remember, so he was like, we got to find a place to do it. And I remember at one point I had some friends that went to USC and they had done I went to a party with him where you like get on a bus and you go to a place and then you go to drink and then you get on the bus and you leave, right? With like those, what are those frat formals or whatever? Something. Yeah. I, I don't know what it was, but I remember this one place they took us to to do it. This 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 restaurant on Sunset Boulevard, and I was like, oh, I know a place. So we went and looked at this place, and it actually was the place we ended up doing our first nightclub at, and 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 we did it. We ended up doing it there, and so he, you know, we sort of he made flyers that were really. He was really artistic, so he like found creative paper and different inks, and like did this weird process. Would make these really interesting artistic flyers, and I was the person that went out and handed them out. Where is the money coming from for this project? Don't even know. Couldn't tell you. There was no money in the beginning, so the only thing we had to front was like printing of the flyers. What about like rent? We didn't have to pay rent because it was we were doing it was like a promotion on a Friday night. Got you. They kicked the bar. We took the door, right? So 
and we paid the DJs and know, some security, I guess. I don't really remember. Mm-hmm. And the cashier who took the money, right? So that was sort of what we did. Mm-hmm. So I literally went around and handed out flyers and we did that first party and there was like, it was bananas. There was line to get in, so many people coming and um, fire department closes down. Why do you think that was? Why, why do you think it became such a hot spot that day or that night? I don't know. I think... I went to every nightclub in the city and stood outside the door and handed a flyer to every person that left and said, come to my party. And I think Taff had a little bigger of a network and knew some people. And I think it was, you know, a classic outliers. It was the right place, the right time, the right set of circumstances. So we picked a location that was had parking. We picked a, a night that no other big promoters at that time were doing a party. Like, but yeah. we didn't know those. Like, we didn't know. Like, now I can call the phone and ask 10 people, like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And we know we had a plan. At that time, we just didn't know. So there was no obstacles on that first night that we did that. So we did that, and it was really successful. And so we said, let's do it again. And our format was, well, we'll do it the first Friday of every month. We started doing that. We did, like, three of them. And then finally the owner, and they all were packed and people came they liked the party the owner said why don't you do something on a weekly basis so that we because we were making him money and so we were like so we sat down with him to negotiate and he goes starts the negotiation he goes i'll give you half the bar we're like great done deal negotiations are done right we're smart enough to know that and um and then somehow and this is where I think like God or the universe or whatever you want to call it, there's always divine intervention in my life where it was like, I said, here's what we're going to do. I had a marketing plan. My marketing plan, we were going to make that club $1 to get in. And at that time, every nightclub in Los Angeles was $10 to get in. I don't care where you went, you paid $10, right? Every big nightclub, that's what it was back in those days. Everybody paid. It's not like today. And so I was like, we make, since we're getting half the bar, we're already making. We know we're making money because people are going to drink, and so let's just make it a dollar. On let's just point. get more people in the door. So it was just Wednesday night. We did it on Wednesday nights. We called it Papa Willie, and we made it a dollar to get in. And it was like, and I went to every nightclub and every. I went to State Beach nightclubs, Universal City Walk concerts. I handed out flyers everywhere. I was an animal, right? So and it was just you know. That thing. And so I think that was, you can probably speak for yourselves. Hey, let's go. We can go to the club on Wednesday night. That's new. It sounds cool. It's got DJs we like for a dollar. Who cares? Right. Like nothing to lose. So if it's, gonna if happen, sucks, right? we'll leave. Right. right. So I think that was part of the success. And that club became like the it club of the summer. Right. In those times, it was like there was always one night that became the premier night in town um, for the whole week. And that became that club. That was where, like... What was the club's name? Papa Willie. Papa Willie. And it was like... Oh, a, you changed the name? Or? We changed the name from the first okay. club. The first club was called Opus Lily. Okay. And then Papa Willie was named after this guy, William... William it's William's last name. It's Henry Duarte was the designer that I was talking to, my two friends. And then William, I forget William's last name, but his nickname was Papa Willie. So they were like, I was like, what do we name this new club? They're like, call it Papa Willie. That's, that's, but so they, that's William's nickname. They gave you half of it, right? They gave you half of it. They gave us half the bar. And 
We made money. You own the club, or it was no? It was just a promotion. We, oh, we I, see, I, see, I started I see, as a promoter. Okay. We didn't own it, so we started mm-hmm. as a promoter. So, so how so. long did you run? Or we did that for that? a couple of years. But when you're a kid and you're working at a gas station and you made money and you walk away and you made five, six, seven hundred dollars cash, yeah, on a Wednesday night, you're like, no brainer. You hit this gold mine. Yeah, because you worked a whole two weeks to make five hundred dollars, and they took taxes out. So it was like, oh my god, this yeah. is unbelievable. So I was like. I'm not going back to cosmetology school. Fuck that. So you didn't cut any more hair? Didn't cut any more. Well, I did, but later. But I, I was like, no, no way. Like I didn't, you know, so it, it was like, so we started doing that club and that club ran for like a year as like a hot Wednesday night party. And it was like, it was like a line to get in. Celebrities were coming. Like Young MC and Tone Loke were like freestyling there, and the Beastie Boys were DJing in one room. It was like there's all this, and I used to stand outside that nightclub just in awe, thinking like, "What the heck? Like I'm some kid from Joshua Tree that doesn't know anybody." Like it was a really weird. But do you think it was just like a combination of like you you know your partner's connections and your your grit and your hustle, and also the one dollar thing? Or was there something else about that bar or that ambiance or that? Feeling well, of being there that well, we were smart enough. Like we hired great DJs. Like the DJs we hired were like known DJs in town. Okay. They were young. This kid Mike Messix and these other DJs Cranny and Sheldon. And Cranny and Sheldon were like these pickers, and they would go and find these old obscure forty fives and these old B side records, and they would play like old forty fives, soul, and B sides. So they had this really crazy underground sound. And Mike Messix was like a top. Not top 40, but was more mainstream DJ, right? Yeah. So in that like underground, like the Beastie Boys would come and hang out there because these guys were known as like, they would find these crazy old records. Like they would fly to Cuba and find records or they would go to London to swap meets. Like this is when you can only get music and records. So they just had this thing and somehow they did it with us. So I think all those factors factored into it. The DJs, TAF. Me, the location. That's what I said. It's an outliers. Right, right place, right time, right mm-hmm. set of circumstances. Like, did I know that those were the best DJs and those things were going to happen? No, we had no idea. But it was just sort of like... You were just doing it. Yeah. The, there was some sort of grace that happened and it allowed it to sort of be this situation. At, so. at what point did you leave that and leave Papa Willie? And, and did you, I mean, did you leave and start your own venue? Or was so, it? like, early in my career... Like, I'd become friends with Drew Barrymore, and she was, like, our cashier at Papa Willie at a young age because she was going out, and her mom was like, if she's going to go out, she might as well be with you because you're sober and you look after her, and it was probably safer for her to be with me. So so we were friends, and I sort of became friends with a lot of kids in young Hollywood. Um, And um, I think I saw early on that there was sort of a path in young Hollywood. Right at that young age, and so Taff and me eventually, very early, like after those first couple clubs, kind of parted ways. He really wanted to go down the road of what kids would relate to today is like EDM world, and I went down the world of like hip hop, mm-hmm. right? Young Hollywood to put music to it. So, um, and I worked for myself, and very early on, I called the company in the first. In the beginning of the days, it was Brimple Dust Productions. Everything was Brimple Dust. Put my name on every invitation, on every flyer. It was like Brimple Dust Presents. Like it was just, and again, I don't know why I felt like that was something, but you know, it was like making a brand out of my name unknowingly. Right. Right. I just it's knew. something that became like it seems like it became more popular 
in the last decade or so, especially with the rise of social media, where you see the founders of the companies are the face of the company, really. And they're the ones, you know, driving the sales and driving the brand forward. Right. So we really, you know, and I just sort of was like, that's what I did. So, I mean, you know, in the 90s, we controlled nightlife. And if and it was... And I don't say this in an egotistical way. It just what it was. It was like you were like, oh, we're going to go to that Bolt House party. That was just kind of a thing that because I know I've talked to other people. And you were about just it. promoting at this time. You weren't. Did you have your own venues? No. The, so, but what what I did as a promoter and what I saw to do. And I, again, I don't know where these ideas come from because I don't have some formal schooling of like how to like corner a market. It was like I just. Um, and again, this is perfect timing. So like people that were doing promotions went on to do other things. They started record labels, they opened bars, they went and opened hotels. And so there was a space of time where there was like a need for a promoter. And so I stepped in in the 90s and started doing multiple nights a week. So I was the first promoter in the history of Los Angeles and maybe in the country that was doing, I did like a Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday. So I literally controlled the week and we were promoting at different places, but if you wanted to go out on a Monday, if you wanted to come on Thursday to the hottest thing, like at the time it was like Roxbury on Thursday night was the hottest thing in the world, then you better come out on Monday and support us on Monday or you were not getting in on Thursday. Like it was this weird thing that was that organically happened. We didn't plan it that way, but that's the way people saw it. It was like they just came and you were coming out on those nights and we had a control of the market share of like you went out on those nights. And so that went on for decades like that what made a bolt house party so hot i mean at the time like like i said we were friends with a lot of celebrities but a lot of times people weren't celebrities like leo wasn't leo when i met leo he was just a kid that was just maybe on a tv show that like we had a friend like we had shared a publicist and our mutually shared publicist was like hey this kid wants to come can he go so we were like yeah of course so it's just sort of like and that happened with everybody Mm-hmm. Right, they like, kind of rose as you were rising. Yeah, we all kind of rose together. So it was like Charlize was a model coming to like dinners and like at Roxbury, and we had no money, but she was just one of the girls that was there, and then she wins an Oscar. Like these things just happened. Like yeah. it was just you know you were in a good like, place. I like mean, Cameron Hollywood. Diaz dated Carlos, who worked for me, who was doing production work for me. That was his girlfriend. She wasn't some act. You know, it was just sort of like you just knew these people. At, that were just kind of, you know, came around. And we sort of had built this little family community. Um, my partner, Jennifer, was great at like, and at that time, so at that time, what, um, I met a guy that, by the name of Herbie, who is like this smart Jewish kid who went to Beverly Hills High School and was, was super hustler. And I think he saw me and was like, just like today, like if I was like, I think he saw me going, who the fuck is that guy? And why is there a line out the door? And why is he doing this club that the whole universe is going to? Like, he, I, and he befriended me. And he was like, and we did a few parties together. But he was the one that really taught me, like, you got to make a database. You got to get a guest list. You got to get phone numbers. Like he kind of put a little bit of business right, in my right. brain. And so early on... I started collecting people's addresses and that became a thing. And I built up this big database. And when we started getting addresses, we were doing it on DOS. 
to put it in perspective, right? It was like it, on DOS, Macintosh didn't exist. And so it was like all on Windows. And, and so I started collecting things. So we had a great mailing list for a really long time that we garnished that was like we would send a mailing list. And, you know, at one point it was probably 10,000 names. But it, and it was like of people that trusted us. So if you got an invitation from us, it was like getting an invitation to your friend's yeah. wedding. You were like, you opened it, you looked at it, you didn't, it wasn't junk mail. It was like sure. it was special. And so, and we always took pride in doing interesting invitations. Sometimes we made boxes and you open them and there was like a pyramid inside, whatever. We, you know, we had a, I remember we did a promotion once. It was like called soap. And we sent you a bar of soap and it was wrapped around it. It was like that night. You know, we just always yeah. thought of different interesting three-dimensional ways to do promotion. So, you know, we sort of did that. And that was kind of how we really started. And we did that for, like I said, for decades. And then somewhere in that time frame, people started asking us to do parties for them. So this is in the 90s? Yeah. So like, and I remember like the These first- These are private parties? Yeah, corporate parties. So like one of the first corporate parties we ever did was with Janet Jackson. So she, had, she would come to our clubs and had a great time. And she was like, I'm having a record release party. Will you do my record release party? I'm like, yeah. Had no idea what that meant. You're working with a record label, putting it on, doing it. We did it at like the Sony lot. And like we did this, but it was worked and we got the right people to go. I think that's what they wanted. They wanted to have a, she wanted to have a fun party. Brent, were you a partier at the time? I mean, you're throwing all these no, no, parties. No, no, I've been but, sober. Right. I'm so, sober 31 years. So how do you know what people want? I mean, if you're not someone who is partying and drinking and doing all the stuff that, you know, goes on there, how do you know how to organize a party like that and put something like that together? Well, I mean, I, I think at some point I kind of figured it out because what I would do is like, so in that first year it was like Brent Boldhouse presents or it was like by the people who brought you Papa Willie. Like we sort of always knew to say, you know, like a movie. It's like, you know, somehow we just sort of like, I connected those dots and we're like, here we did that. Um, and so... You know, we just sort of, I don't know. Some of it is, I can't, I don't, you know, there wasn't a bit, because a lot of times, especially when you go to like, when I speak at USC or I go to Harvard and speak, it's like, what was your business plan? It was like, dude, there was no plan. There was sort of like, it was like one step led to another step to another step. I guess what I didn't, I guess if anything, like from a business point of view, it was like, I wasn't scared to take steps. Right. Some people are scared to take steps because they don't know what they're, what's around the corner. Right. But I was, you know, my CFO is always, he's like, Do you have the ability to see around the corner. Right. And I guess there's some truth to that. Like I can kind of gauge like maybe what's coming or, mm -hmm. you know. So what's coming? <laughs> Bungalows. We'll get there. We'll get there. What was the craziest story you remember from that time? I mean, in those decades where you're throwing parties, whether it was you know at the clubs or at private you know events, what do you? What's like one distinct memory? So the best story I can tell is so, um, and this is the peak of like us doing multiple nights and like, and this is in the '90s. So I get a call from Rick Rubin and Mick Jagger, and Rick's doing Mick's record, his solo record, and they call me and they say, we want to have a party. What do, you, what do you say to Mick Jagger? You say yes, right? Yeah. You don't say no. So, but the crazy thing is, is this is also during a week. So we have like a Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday night club. So we have our normal clubs, 
Um, they want to have a party on a Friday night. So you add that into the mix. And then on top of it, we were hired to do a thing with um, Age Project Los Angeles. Um, we were helping them with a big gala they had that year. And it was the year that Madonna like walked in their fashion show and she went topless. So it was like a big deal. So we were working on that. So it was this crazy week. And they call me, let's say, on like the Thursday. And I'm like, and they want to have the party the following Friday. So it's like 10 days away. I'm like, and I just say yes. Yeah, we'll get a house. We want to have it in the Hollywood Hills. Great. So I just start asking people in the club scene, like, I need a house to have a party for a client that's important. And I don't really tell people who it's for. And then, so I run into a friend of mine, this girl, Victoria. And she says, oh, maybe at my house. And let me ask my roommate. I was like, well, can I come see your house to make sure it's the right house? She says, sure. So I go up to the house, look at the house. House, house is perfect, Right. And I don't meet her roommate then because she wasn't around. So I said, great. I have Rick Rubin come up to the house on like Monday. He looks at it and he's like, this is great. So this is like Monday. And then I've got this, all these other things happening this week. So I was like, great. Work on the fashion show with Madonna and all this stuff. And I I don't really think about that party until like Friday morning when we're doing the party. We start loading in and doing stuff and setting up the bars and, and all this stuff. And so... I get there Friday morning. We're setting up those bars. We're doing things. And I kind of look around and there's like a bunch of girls. There's like a handful of girls at the house. And they're all like cute and like whatever. And I'm kind of looking around. And so then I see Victoria, my friend. And she's like, oh, come meet Maria. So I go in the house. I go meet Maria. I go meet her roommate. And her roommate is this girl named Heidi Fleiss, who at the time was the biggest madam in Hollywood. Right? So you guys don't remember it, but it was like, you know, E News Daily, TMZ headline. It it would be like it, breaking news. It's breaking news, yeah. right? So, what what well, what happened is Heidi Fleiss got caught, and she had a black book, and everyone got in her book got caught. It was like this breaking is before the party. No, this is this is years before. Years this is years before oh, she I became see, see, famous. See. This is like the but online in, version of that. The, 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 well, I can't remember what the name of the website was where it was basically like the book. But it was all online where they released the names of the guys. Maybe, yeah. yeah. So, but uh, but just being a person who's in the nightclub scene in Hollywood, right. I was like, oh, I know who this person is. Yeah. <laughs> like, I knew who she was. And I was like, oh, shit. I'm doing a party for Mick Jagger and Rick Rubin at the biggest madam in Hollywood's house. And I'm like, and it's Friday and the party's tonight. So I was like, I can't change it. And I was like, I can't tell. I'm not going to tell him. Right? So... We just end up doing it, and it, and it was just like the craziest party. Like, it was, it was like traffic; people can't get in. Like, like Prince coming up the driveway. The Red Hot Trip. It was so crowded and crazy. Red Hot Trailers couldn't get in, so they scaled this hillside, climbed the fence in the back to get into the party. Like, it was just just a crazy party. Johnny Depp was DJing. Like, it was just a really fun, legendary party. The funny part about that party is, right? So years later, Heidi Fleiss gets caught. Someone, I'm sure she did it with them, they write a tell-all book, right? And in the opening chapters of that book, it says Heidi Fleiss talks about her Hollywood coming out party. Like how she was embraced by Hollywood, right? And it's like Prince walking up the driveway, the dark-haired mysterious girl at the door checking people in, who's Jennifer, my partner. She talks about everything that happened in that party. Right. And I'm just going, 
that's a bunch of fucking shit. <laughs> that party had nothing to do with you. It was just a complete roll of the dice that we ended up at Heidi Fleiss's house. And, you know, but she sort of like positioned it as her big Hollywood right. coming out party. And like she was part of the Hollywood thing. And like it, you know, it was just one of those things. It was like Jack Nicholson's there, like Robert De Niro. It was just, it was just one of those crazy legendary parties, which to this day I think is pretty funny that it ended up being that way. And it was at her house. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty shocking so just a few minutes ago you brought up uh bungalows and i know that you know you've done much more than that so at what point you know did you start venturing into opening your own places i know at one point you partnered with sbe so why don't you tell us a little bit about that journey so it really started i did a nightclub in Las Vegas at the Hard Rock Hotel called Body English, which um, we sort of, we're still doing nightclubs in LA. We did that. And that was a really huge success. So it was like light was there and then Body English came. It was like, and it was really before all the nightclubs were happening in Las Vegas. And we sort of brought DJ AM to Vegas. And like that really became a huge success in Las Vegas. Um, and in the process of doing that, I met at that nightclub, I met Sam Nazarian. And he hadn't really started SBE at that time. I think maybe he had bought in one property and they weren't, nothing had really opened or they were even going to do anything yet. I think he had maybe done his deal with Philippe Stark to figure out what to do. So he came to Body English. I let him sit at my table and we sort of just said, we went to lunch and just sort of talked about it. And sort of, you know, Sam sort of laid out his vision of what he thought it was going to do. And um, we made a partnership. Like I think I was Sam's first partner. Um, were you part of SB or was it more like a joint venture between no, both no, we were, I was a, It was a partnership. So gotcha. we were a partner in the company and we eventually sold our interest in it. But um, it was really trying to set up this thing. So, you know, it worked for five or six years. And then it just sort of, we just, I think Sam sees the world differently than I see the world. And I have a different philosophy on how to take care of hospitality, what hospitality is. So it mm-hmm. just felt like it was better to part ways and sort of, He'll do what he does, and I'll do what I do. It's like I didn't, you know. What, what is your vision of hospitality? Well, I mean, today it's, I think the bungalow encapsulates exactly what I think hospitality is. I think hospitality in Hollywood today is just, it's completely a disaster. I think it is a disaster. I think it's this weird phenomenon where, you know, bottle service started driving everything you know like when we did nightclubs it would be you know you got into our nightclubs because we either just liked you we had a sense that you were like a good person or you were cool or you were a celebrity it was sort of a curated experience of like maybe there's somebody buying a bottle but maybe there's a group of models and maybe there's some pro skateboarders and maybe there's an actor like it was sort of this interesting curation of people in the room it wasn't just you have $5,000, you got $10,000, you got $15,000, great. You guys are now all sitting next to each other and you guys are going to bring all these girls to it. It was like right. there was something interesting. There was more interest in sort of the curation of it. So I just think that, you know, it's like I think New York had Studio 54 where they had that moment that was like these great, this, those great few years where I think Los Angeles had the 90s and 2000s where we were sort of running things was like this decade and a half of like, really special time in LA where it's like if you were in it was like this it was a great time and he ran it it was like seeing all your old familiar friends 
on a Monday night, like you just, it was like, great, that's what we had. And I, you know, I've talked to a lot of people that were like, yeah, it was just different, you know, and it wasn't driven by money because mm-hmm. we weren't driven by money. We were like, we did, we brought bottle service to Los Angeles. I was in Europe. I experienced it in France and I brought it. We did it at Joseph's on Monday nights and it was the first nightclub in the city to do bottle service. Like, and we did it, but we did it in a way that wasn't like every table wasn't for it wasn't sale. Wasn't obnoxious. Some tables were for sale, and some tables we kept for certain people. So, um, but that was sort of, you know, a different time. You know, I always say that Hyde is the descendant. There's the line in the sand before Hyde, and then there's after Hyde. Before Hyde, things were different. After Hyde, things have changed big time. Right? Hyde was sort of that dis- delineation because Hyde is where TMZ was birthed. Yep. You know, that guy stood, I don't forget his name, but he stood outside there. Harvey Levin? Yeah, Harvey yeah. stood outside Hyde with the camera and sort of started TMZ standing outside Hyde, which was... And you were part of the, part of the creation of Hyde, right? I, Hyde, I named it, I created it, it was our idea. It was like, you know, I always think it's funny that Hyde is a brand that still Sam does things with, but he likes to think, tell people that it was like, like, Hyde like a skin of a cow and I'm like no it was named after Hyde Park in London and because in the beginning of that we only played and those are spelled completely differently too Hyde Park and yeah (laughs) because Hyde Park is such a musical place and we really wanted you know I looked at at the first small Hyde on Sunset for me was like instead of doing a big club it was like a bar where we would play like rock or alternative it was you just had a little freedom to play some fun music it wasn't like because you couldn't really do dancing in there I mean Hyde was almost, it was like a little bit bigger than the room we're in now. Like it only held 80 wow. people, mm-hmm. right? That's what people don't realize. It was like 80 people could fit in that room and we we're, and that's packed, yeah. you know? So of course people are going to get turned away because you can only put 80 people in a place. It was like pretty crazy. So, um, but it, you know, it ran white hot for a minute there. It's pretty insane. So there's area, there's Foxtail, there's Katsuya, XIV with Michael Mina. What was, what was, what was all that like? So, you know, area was super successful. You know, that was my idea to create like a nightclub that felt like a mid-century modern home. And Foxtail didn't work the way it was supposed to work, unfortunately. It was sort of, I think we had an identity problem there. Um, We had problems with the city. Some things didn't work. Because it was supposed to be a restaurant and a little nightclub upstairs. And it never really got there. And I don't know, we could pick it apart why it didn't work. But for some reason, it didn't work. And 14... Um, with Michael Mina was, I think Michael Mina just came to LA before his time. I think if you if he opened a restaurant today like that, I think it would be a home run. He had a a tasting menu paired with a vegan tasting menu, and again, I think, um, I think we didn't let Michael have enough time to sort of let it incubate and sort of let the mm-hmm. community get what it was. You know, it was an expensive project, and we had you know. You know, SBE became a lot about like what was the bottom line. They took a lot of institutional money, and when you start having to, when bean counters start to make creative decisions, I think you have problems in yeah. any creative business. And nightlife is a creative business. You know, you you can't always let that be the driver of that car, and that's part of how I see hospitality. Yeah. Like I don't, I think I learned anything from SBE. It's like how to do things not as expensively, because you know Sam liked to do things really expensive. He liked to operate in an expensive world. That's the world he came from mm-hmm. nothing against him that's just what he knew and it was like but then when you're saying when you look at a budget for the year and you're looking at the cfo and he's like 
you got to hit 100%, 365 days a year. It's like, well, no. Monday's not going to do the same money as Saturday, but why? Mm-hmm. But you can't build a budget that way. Yeah. Right. So and then your your yeah. decisions are based upon, or you're making decisions on like, well, you're going to give me five, but you'll give me ten. But maybe you have cuter girls, but you have more money. We'll go for the money. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, is the party better or worse because the cute girls aren't there? Yeah. I think it's worse. I think, and it's a slow erosion over time, right? Yeah. So that partnership with with SBE sort of ended at in like two thousand nine ish, right? And then the, I think so. I don't know exactly the time. And then, um, well, that's I think that's what it says online. So let's just yeah, let's, let's just go favorite. with that. Yeah, yeah. And then, I go with that. Uh, yeah. Wikipedia yeah. is the best uh, best resource these days. Sometimes, <laughs> except also Wikipedia says I'm worth forty five million dollars. But um, I I want that money. I don't know where. I don't. I, I wonder if you can get the money. Wikipedia for the, uh, that was an ask from Brent Bolthouse. Just sent him over the forty five million, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, you launched uh, Bungalow in two thousand twelve. Um, so in those few years, I know you had a few different projects like Neon Carnival. I think right, like still around, do that. Yeah. You know, in the middle of that. So we started. Process. So after SBE, I went and worked. I went and published a magazine called 944, which was around for a few years. And then we went and did um, Truesdale, mm-hmm. which was a nightclub on Sunset with Guy Starkman and Darren, who now Darren works with One Oak Guys. Um, and we did that. That was pretty fun and exciting. And that was great. Like, that was a great opportunity. And we, I think that was another, you know, nightclub where we sort of used our philosophy where it was like, Let's make it an interesting room with interesting people and sell some tables, not all the tables, right? Like, I think there's that whole world of, like, you can't sell them all, you know? And so, and then we sold that. Um, and in there, shortly after that, I, I met the owners of the Fairmont Hotel, and they had a property that was interesting. And, you know... Um, and they were they they went months down the road in negotiations um, with another group, another restaurant group um, that I'm not going to name, and um, but I think that restaurant group at the time they were a young company, and I think they kind of phoned it in, and they didn't they didn't put a lot of thought into it. And I think they didn't present a, a great offering, and we presented something much more compelling that um, was the bungalow. Mm-hmm. Um, it was completely different than what they were presenting because I got to see what they were presenting and I made sure it was completely different than what it is. Um, and, you know, the owners of that hotel made a decision to go with us, which I think was the right decision, you know. But those other guys, we were, they always seem to tell the story that I stole their idea of Bungalow. And it's always funny to me that well, it was great. Our, it was our a, idea had nothing yeah. to do with them. We yeah. made sure we had nothing. Not one piece of furniture looks like anything they presented. So I just think it's funny. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a great idea, whatever it was, because, I mean, I've been to Bungalow, uh, you have two, and it's, you know, it's, we always say, like, the line is just ridiculous. Like, you know, like, like sometimes I I just, like, choose not to go because of how long the line is, unless, you know, you can send But you go because the line, you know, if you stand in line, you're going to get in. Yeah. And when you're in, uh, yeah, it's, it's, people. So part of our philosophy of the Bungalow was, Making tables reasonable if you buy a table and mm-hmm. not having a doorman, mm-hmm. not having a situation that was like everyone's welcome. It was yeah. a neighborhood bar, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, and lines suck. No one likes signs, but people still go to Disneyland right. and there's lines at Disneyland. And I think I think if there's the idea that you're going to get in, it's different than if yeah, you yeah. stand I mean, in line and you meet you know some doorman and he's right. like, uh, yeah, I don't like your hat. You're not getting in, right? Like yeah, that's yeah. just right. like I think there's a different... 
thing. And, you know, knock on wood, six and a half years later, we're still there. And I think the reason for that is because, one, you've either been there and you know the good vibes and just the pe- I think it's the people that makes it what it is. Or you haven't been there and you've heard so many stories of, dude, you got to go to the bungalow. Like, it's, it's such great vibes around there. Like, you need to go. And so that's why people wait in line. I think right. that's like a testament to, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had a line know, from the first Friday. We opened on a Thursday. Donovan Leach, the singer from the 60s, performed. And then Friday, the next Friday, there was a line. Like, yeah. it's from the day one, we've had a line of people wanting who were excited about that mm-hmm. project. And which is a great sign. Which is a great sign, yeah. We sort of didn't anticipate it to be quite as busy as it was, and we had to scramble to meet demand. But, I mean, we knew it would be, we thought we knew it would be great, and we just didn't know how it, we would hit such a zeitgeist of, like, we obviously hit a nerve in culture, um, and at least in Los Angeles, and I think around the world, of People liking that offering. Mm-hmm. So that was in Santa Monica, and then you launched Huntington Beach? Like we opened a year and a half ago in Huntington mm-hmm. Beach. It'll be two years in August, I guess. So what, um, what is like, how do you see the future panning out for, for the bungalow project specifically? So we're going to do one in San Francisco next. Um, awesome. We haven't really announced it, but it's something up in the Bay Area, and um, we're pretty close to closing a deal in San Diego, so... And then we're looking at all kinds of deals all over. Like all, every day I'm looking at, it seems like we get new offers and new deals. Some are, make sense, some don't make sense. And sometimes you spend, you know, like we spent years working on a deal in Redondo Beach and then it ended up not happening. They couldn't get the permits. Yeah. Or they're still trying to get the permits. Maybe they will. But So it's just sort of like you just, it seems like it's a long process. Yeah. Does the bungalow in any way reflect you, your personality, your character, your 100%. lifestyle? Yeah. So bungalow is really the way I like to live my life. Like I make the playlist for the music. It's all to this music. day. To this day. I was there yesterday, like deleting some songs, adding some songs. Like, cause I think the soundscape is such an important aspect to, um, any social experience, um, in personally or in a bar. Like mm-hmm. I think it's so important. So, um, and just making something comfortable that you like to live in that feels like a house. That was, you know, we wanted the bungalow to feel like a house party or right, a house. Like that like, was yeah. important to me. Like we really wanted, we spent a lot of time with the designers. You know, that was really important to me and making sure they felt that. And that came across. And I think we hit that because people tell us all the time it feels like a great house party. Brent, I know we've been with you for almost an hour now. And I mean, your story is obviously super inspirational from, you know, your childhood to, Cutting hair, which by the way, you said you cut hair after that at one point. When did you cut? So hair there was after that? so somewhere like in there, like I was promoting, and then like maybe I didn't have any promotion, so I went back and worked um, for a friend of mine that, by the name of Kaz at his salon for a few months. A, I don't know, yeah. six months a year. I don't know was where, mm-hmm. where I sort of didn't have um, a job, and I was like, oh, I can go cut hair. I know how to do that. And mm-hmm. at that, and then at that moment, I had like. I was friends with everybody in town. So I was cutting movie stars, hairs, and rock stars and doing stuff. And it was like, oh, yeah. It was like, Cal was like, please stay. Who, who was the coolest person's hair that you cut? Peter Gabriel. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. I, and he just came in and did it. I was like, that's cool. That's Peter Gabriel. That's yeah. what the hell. <laughs> but yeah, I cut myself off earlier. But what I was about to say was, you know, you're so inspirational. The story's inspirational. What you're doing to this day and continuing to build and grow and create such an awesome experience for this LA community. Who is your inspiration? So, 
I mean, I get inspiration. I mean, inspiration can be anywhere, right? You can get inspiration from all kinds of people. Um, if you had to, if you had to choose just one person or one uh, thing, I mean, somebody who's been super impactful and inspirational in my life was like uh, Tony Robbins. Did a great series um, called Power Talk, mm-hmm. and I don't know. This is when there were cassettes. I don't know. This yeah, it's not the I am not your guru days. It's way before. No, but I think that's a great documentary. Yeah. Um, but he would do these things called power talks where he would interview, say, a Deepak Chopra or some – he would just do these interviews with interesting people. And that was such an inspirational thing for me of um, hearing what other – you know, because that's really kind of the way I've learned and I've educated myself is I've always listened to books on tape, which is now iTunes. But back then, you could go to stores. You would go into a store, rent book on tape, and you could put it in a Walkman. Mm-hmm. And listen. And I've been doing that since I was like 19. Like, I always was self-educating myself and always looking towards inspirational things. So like Dale Carnegie was a huge inspiration to me. Like when I read How to Win Friends and Influence mm-hmm, People, mm-hmm. like was really impactful of like, oh, that's a way to kind of have yourself in the world. And I think um, – you know, so those kind of things always like those kind of people inspired me. Um, hearing other people's struggles, like I remember reading about Abraham Lincoln and just realizing that he failed at public office like fifty times before he even got into public office, right? And you yeah. just think of like, well, if he quit on the thirty seventh try, we wouldn't have one of the greatest presidents of all time, right? Like you just think that like, and so for me, like those kinds of stories really taught me to be always persistent, always to get back on the horse, always to never, you know, and if you fall, get back, keep going. Like, cause you're never going to win the race if you fall and don't get back up. Yeah. Right. You just lose the race. So it was like hearing those kind of stories of, I mean, most great businessmen and most people in industry like if you really you know and this is kind of before biography became biography you started if you i was always digging for those stories and just sort of like you know if it if it's like how many times did ford fail before he got a car to work like all those kind of stories where you just realize that like wow it, they put everything on the line and and they made it work you know and so those are the people mm-hmm. and there's mm-hmm. a long list of those stories and books that i've read have just sort of like have inspired me in my own life of like okay the one thing i got out of that is you never give up yeah right because you can't yeah um i want to kind of end on this note you've had an amazing career so far in hospitality uh, i want to kind of talk a little bit about your career in film um you've uh, been in some tv shows uh, some music videos. I was watching the Jessica Simpson one last oh, night. That's right. Uh, where you were the DJ. Um, uh, so you, you've I been did, in like the I Entourage, The Hills. Uh, tell us why that came about. I know you've been around Hollywood during your career, but how did that come about? So early in my career, I had friends that were like directors, and they always thought it was cute to put me in movies. Um, if it's like being the DJ. Cause it's I easy did, to work with probably, just like don't Probably, worry. but I mean, I do DJ, and I've always DJed my whole career. We started doing that very early on. I would play, like I was always would play like rock because I loved rock and I would always like do play rock and roll. But like early on, they made me um, do that. And then like, you know, Entourage, we knew the guys that wrote on, on some of the writers on Entourage and some of the creators and we knew Doug and we knew um, Rob Weiss and they were like in our clubs going out and they were like, and they really wanted to make Entourage authentic. So we sort of, you know, they were like, can we film at your place and would you be in a scene? So it was like, 
pretty harmless and you know pretty true to life. And I think I think you know like part of that is like why the Hills was successful, right? It was like it was rooted in people having real jobs and real places, and it was filmed in L.A. And you were going into real nightclubs and into real restaurants, and you really saw it. And it was like you could watch the Hills about area and then read about why on Thursday Jessica Simpson was there in People Magazine, right? It was all connected and made it all somewhat real. But it was really kind of like I didn't really want a career in TV or film. It just sort of like happened yeah. and like the Hills was, you know, my friends at MTV because I was friends with all the executives over there. They were like, I don't know, do the show. If you don't like it or it's weird, fire the girl. We're, we don't care about you. You're our friend and we work together and we do parties together. Like we were doing a lot of stuff for MTV at the time. And so they were just like, it doesn't make sense for you. Then get rid of her. And then we're out of your office. We don't, they're like, we don't, we don't care. (laughs) The show wasn't about you. You know what I mean? We didn't know at the time. We're like, okay. And then it became the Hills, which was this crazy phenomenon for a handful of years. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Which is again, another bizarre thing, which, I think SBE got more out of that than I got out of it. I just got hassled in airports and weird parts of the country. <laughs> well, <laughs> so. Brent, it's been an amazing conversation. Um, you know, sitting down with you and hearing your story from from where you were, you know, in your childhood and high school days to where you are now, and um, you know, it is it is a big inspiration. And I think we're really excited. I think I speak for both of us when we say we're really excited to see where you take, you know, where your projects go next, especially the bungalow. And uh, yeah, hopefully, uh, me too. Yeah, hopefully, you know. <laughs> We, we see a bungalow in, I don't know, every city pretty soon. I don't know if every city. I think bungalow as a brand can go to certain cities, right? Yeah. We need it. There's a, it's a big place and we need to have certain elements. So it can't go everywhere. But yeah. we're also going to do some other smaller bars and other projects. And, you know, hopefully, you know, at least a couple more bungalows would be real nice. I wouldn't be complaining. Yeah. 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 Thanks, Brent. Thanks. Thanks, Brent. Thanks for tuning in. You can catch Brent and follow more of his journey at, at Brent Bolthouse on Instagram and Twitter. Make sure to also give us a follow at The Founder Hour and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on new releases, giveaways, and more at thefounderhour.com. Also, if you could please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify, we would really appreciate it. See you next week.